Hey there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Aulani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. Happy October! Y'all, it's the best time of the year for so many different reasons. First and foremost, it's spooky season, home to the best holiday of the year. But Halloween also marks one year since Stories from the Mortuary first premiered on YouTube. So to celebrate, I've decided to do an exceptionally spooky case for every episode that gets premiered in October. So this week, I decided to do a case in which one of the murders happens on Halloween. And yeah, you heard correctly, just one murder, meaning that this week, we're going to be covering a couple of serial killers. Now, this is a story that you all probably have heard of. It has been turned into a horror movie, as most cases do. Now, I normally don't cover serial killers because there's hardly any information on the victims, and this is a very victim-based podcast, but this story is so much like the plot of a horror movie and has its final death on Halloween, so it felt appropriate to tell this story. This is easily one of the more brutal cases covered here, and it's definitely not going to be the last brutal case covered here. It does involve torture and rape of teenage girls. Like I've said before, I'm going to be going into detail on these murders, so please prepare yourself to hear graphic details. Now, there is a transcript of an audio recording of one of the torture rapes, and while I do believe in giving details to truly give the full scope of what the victim went through, I did not include the transcript or even a reenactment of the transcript of that tape. If you have the stomach for it, I do urge you to read it just so you can fully understand the sadism that exists in this world and really truly understand what this girl went through. It's really easy to minimize crimes when you don't hear the details or see the pictures, but it's hard to deny the sheer brutality that exists when you're seeing it with your own eyes. But if you feel like you have a pretty good idea of the horrors of reality, then don't be ashamed of sparing yourself. It's a lot to go through. Um, I'll also be going into the killer's backgrounds a little bit, which, again, is something I normally stray from, but I felt like it helped really paint a complete picture of how these men came to do what they did. We'll be taking a deeper dive than we normally do into the psychology of at least one of these killers. With that being said, I am not a psychologist, I'm not a psych major, and I'm not an expert in the field of psychology. However, the sources I'll be referencing today do contain information from experts in this field, as I'll be pulling information directly from medical journals published on the American Psychological Association Digital Library. But first, as always, I do need your help in looking for a missing Indigenous woman. Marianne Alexi was a 33-year-old mother of four when she went missing from Anchorage, Alaska in 2012. Marianne actually lived in Fairbanks, Alaska, but made the journey to Anchorage to check out a school for medical assisting. Marianne was on a mission to better her life and become a role model for her children. She hoped going to school would also allow her to better support her family and was very much looking forward to tackling this new adventure. Police confirmed that she did indeed arrive in Anchorage on October 9, 2012, around noon. Her activities during the day are unknown, but allegedly Marion called her friend Peggy at 3 a.m. on October 10th, saying she was lost in the Spinard area of Anchorage. Peggy said Marion didn't sound coherent, and with her history of drinking, Peggy assumed she was drunk. That would be the last time Marion had contact with anyone. 
Since Marianne kept regular contact with family and friends, they immediately knew something was wrong. For an entire day to pass with no word from Marianne and no phone calls to check on her children, her family began to worry. They checked with the school she was supposed to be meeting with, and much to their dismay, they confirmed that she didn't show up for her scheduled appointment. The family wasted no time and quickly boarded a plane to fly down to Anchorage. The family went to the police, and they began a search of the area for Marianne. Police originally thought perhaps she had been drunk and wandered off into someone's shed, garage, or outbuilding and passed out. They encouraged residents of the Spinard area to search their property for the missing woman. The police also checked the waters of nearby Lake Hood, with nothing being found there either. In fact, there have been absolutely zero clues in Marianne Alexie's disappearance. It's truly as if she had vanished into thin air. Marianne's family has spoken out and believes their case may not have received the attention it deserves because Marianne is of Native American descent. The police vehemently deny this. It's statistically a fact, however, that minorities in the United States make up a disproportionate amount of missing persons cases and often receive less media coverage. Sadly, Marianne's brother Robert was tortured by Marianne's disappearance, and in 2014, he tragically completed suicide. It's excruciating and heartbreaking to lose a loved one, but the not knowing aspect of missing persons cases has to be absolutely horrific. Marianne's sister Josie runs a Facebook page for awareness of Marianne's case. The page is not as active anymore, but does have some good information and does provide us with a way to share her photographs, missing posters, etc. The page is titled, Help Find Marianne Alexi. How can Marianne Alexi completely disappear in the city of Anchorage? Her Charlie Project page states that foul play is now suspected, which would make sense since she had never been found. We must wonder, though, how did she find harm when she was just lost at 3 a.m.? What happened that led up to something? Or did she keep driving and find her way out of the city? Alaska has many remote locations. She possibly left Anchorage and maybe she did end up out in the wilderness somehow, becoming lost and succumbing to the elements. In the meantime, her family continues the search and her case remains unsolved. With such a lack of evidence and clues to go on, speculation is all anyone has. Marianne is 4 feet 11, 120 pounds, has brown eyes and dark brown hair, and is of Native American descent. Marianne has a tattoo on her upper right arm, and she may use the alias Mary Jane Alexi or the last name McNeil. If you know anything about the whereabouts of Marianne Alexi, please call the Anchorage Police at 907 786 8900. You can also call the Alaska State Troopers at 1907-269-5038. Her case number is 12-49422, and her NamUs ID number is 24130. When we return from the break, we'll get into this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit WeAreCrimsonClover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. 
you at any time ever use an ice pick? No, sir. You struck Miss Lamp with a sledgehammer. Do you recall the sledgehammer which was introduced? Yes, sir, I recall. Was that true? No, sir. I touched Miss Ledford on the breast with the cold metal pliers. And if you listen to the tape, you'll hear those pliers being replaced in the toolbox a few seconds later. Oh, what, what did you touch her on the breast for with a pair of pliers? To shock her with the cold metal. The first use of the term serial killer is hotly contested, but it didn't reach the television sets of American nuclear families until the mid-70s, despite serial killers having existed since the dawn of time. Criminal courtroom where began the largest mass murder trial in this nation's history. The murder trial of John Gacy did indeed get underway today with opening statements from the prosecution and the defense. Vivian Rosenberg is covering the trial. The 70s, especially for straight white people, was a time of innocence. There wasn't an inherent need to lock the door, and teen girls freely roamed the streets without fear. There wasn't such a thing as the boogeyman. Surely there couldn't be two. It was a time where two unattractive men could roam the Pacific Coast Highway in a van and pick up hitchhiking girls without a problem. There was an unspoken trust between strangers, even if those strangers were cruising around in what's now commonly referred to as a rape van. Warren Sigmund Bideker's parents didn't want children. Soon after his teenage mother gave birth to him on September 27, 1940, he was living with other family members. Like the typical image of the 40s American nightmare, Lawrence's father was violent and his mother was an alcoholic. Before he was given up, his mother often left he and his brother home alone as small children so she could go out to drink. It didn't take long for her family to convince her to give up the two boys. Lawrence and his brother were taken in by their aunt and uncle, who eventually adopted them. While their living situation was certainly more stable than living with their violent father and neglectful mother, there were unsavory things going on behind closed doors. Though Lawrence himself doesn't admit to it, his sexually sadistic tendencies in adult life were spawned after his own sexual abuse as a child. Sexual sadism develops when a child's sexual identity is being formed, thus why it's highly likely that at some point in his life, Lawrence himself was the victim of sexual violence. Sexual sadism disorder is a condition associated with sexual arousal resulting from the suffering of another person. Formulating a precise definition of the disorder has proved challenging through the years on a number of fronts. Not being overly inclusive so as to pathologize or stigmatize consensual sexual activity, yet constructing diagnostic criteria that are sensitive enough to allow for study and treatment in both forensic and non-forensic populations. Sexual sadism has been difficult to identify and has challenges associated in treating it through both pharmacologic and psychotherapeutic avenues. Studies have noted that the diagnosis has serious and long-term consequences for the patient, so it's important to draw a distinction between pathology and variants of normal sexual behavior. How the disorder is defined also has a large role in how we identify the disorder. The definition should provide clinical utility in linking the disorder with people who are prone to sexual offending and recidivism, which is the tendency of a convicted criminal to reoffend. Sexual sadism falls under the umbrella of paraphilia. 
Paraphilias are persistent and recurrent sexual interests, urges, fantasies, or behaviors of marked intensity involving objects, activities, or even situations that are atypical in nature. Although not innately pathological, a paraphilic disorder can evolve if paraphilia invokes harm, distress, or functional impairment on the lives of the affected individual or others. A total of eight paraphilias are listed in the DSM-5 and include pedophilia, exhibitionism, voyeurism, sexual sadism, sexual masochism, fraturism, fetishism, and transvestic fetishism. As an adult, Lawrence Bittaker resented the mother that gave him up. It's clear how this resentment turned into a full-blown hatred for women over time. At one point, he even planned to find her so that he could kill her. Despite his unstable upbringing, he was still an intelligent kid with an IQ of 138, but he was often bored and unchallenged. In his youth, he took an interest in setting fires. He even burned down a couple sheds in order to get the attention of his aunt and uncle. He indeed got the immediate attention of his caretakers, and his aunt was going to be sure to teach Lawrence a lesson he wouldn't forget. She made him strip naked and lay face down on the bed. She pulled out a cigarette and a lighter, taking a drag before using the lit end to burn Lawrence all over his body. Lawrence soon took on the role of abuser as he manifested his interests in inflicting pain. One day, when he was distraught, he took a pair of pliers out to the rabbit cage they had outside. He then took out his frustrations by using the pliers to rip out the teeth of one of the rabbits. He also started developing stalking habits. He stole a clock that he kept under his pillow and woke up at midnight every night. He would sneak out of his window and wander around the neighborhood. Sometimes, he would go up to a house and peer through the windows. It didn't take long for the stalking to escalate into break-ins. Lawrence wouldn't steal anything, but he would move furniture so that the residents knew that someone had been inside their house. That action was enough for people to feel unsafe in their own homes, a fear that Lawrence relished in. Despite Lawrence's social awkwardness and lack of friends in school, he still managed to get a girlfriend in high school. His girlfriend, Mary Ann, was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Catholic schoolgirl that wore a cross necklace. Lawrence was infatuated with Mary Ann, but when he told her he loved her, she told him that she liked him a lot. This was the first of many times a girl would disappoint Lawrence. But Lawrence didn't let this deter him. In fact, more of his perverted tendencies began shining through. He often took Marianne to the San Gabriel Mountains, but one time he brought a tape recorder and secretly recorded them making out without her consent. At 17 years old, just before graduating high school, Lawrence got arrested. He was sent to Tracy Dual Vocational Institute, which began his life in and out of institutions. He didn't let this first arrest deter him from a life of crime either, to the point of being diagnosed with a polymorphous perverse personality. This Freudian diagnosis essentially means that Lawrence was able to derive sexual pleasure from any number of unrelated crimes. In 1974, Lawrence was living around Hollywood, California. One day, he walked into a Ralph's Market looking for steak. He walked through a pair of swinging doors to the back warehouse section, and he noticed he was being followed. Lawrence doesn't remember having a knife in his hand, but the man who followed him was viciously stabbed nonetheless. It was a miracle that the store clerk survived, but it was this offense that took him to the east facility of the California men's colony, also known as CMC East. 
Roy Lewis Norris was born on February 5, 1948, in Greeley, Colorado. He was the illegitimate son of a couple who forced themselves to marry after his birth, solely due to the social stigma surrounding children born out of wedlock. Due to being unwanted and his mother's drug addiction, Roy frequently bounced between living in foster homes and living with his parents. Besides the instability this caused, it also put Roy in danger. He was sexually abused at least in one of the foster homes, and it's believed something especially horrific occurred with the Latinx family he stayed with because he carried a hatred for Latinx people into his adulthood. When Roy was 16, during a time where he was living with his parents, he had been accused of making sexually suggestive remarks to a female relative. Roy's father threatened to beat him, so to avoid this punishment, he stole his father's car and drove to the Rocky Mountains. Upon arrival, he attempted suicide by injecting air into his arm. He was quickly found by police, who then returned him to his parents. His parents then took the opportunity to remind him and his sister that they were never wanted. The year following his attempted suicide, Roy Norris dropped out of high school and enlisted in the Navy. Between 1965 and 1969, he was stationed in San Diego as an electrician. Following that, he was deployed to Vietnam to serve in the war for the next four months. He didn't see any active combat during this time, but he was still witness to all the atrocities the Vietnam War had to offer. The war was particularly brutal, not just for the attacks on civilians, but for the sexual violence inflicted on Vietnamese women and girls by American servicemen. It was also during this time in Vietnam that Roy became addicted to heroin, which ultimately fueled his crime spree when he came back to the U.S. In 1969, he was discharged from the Navy on psychological grounds after attacking a woman. In 1975, Roy Norris was sent to CMC East for a rape charge. Lawrence Bittaker met Roy Norris while they were making jewelry at CMC East. The two men became friends and frequently discussed their mutual interest in rape and analyzed methods of abducting and raping women without getting caught. They made acquaintances with a man named Richard Schutman, who was serving time for murdering a college girl. Richard would document the fantasies that Lawrence and Roy discussed and sell it to other prisoners as smut. They went through many ideas together during their incarceration. They discussed getting a cabin in the woods, a trailer, even a cave. As they continued plotting their fantasies, they discussed wanting to kidnap a girl for every teenage year, starting at 13 and making their way to 19. Lawrence was paroled in November of 1978, and he rented a room at the Scott Motel in Burbank. Roy was paroled in January of 1979. After raping a woman in Colorado, Roy returned to California and called Lawrence, and they put their minds to work. They agreed that using a van to kidnap girls instead of a car would be better. So the next month, in February of 1979, they pooled their finances and purchased a silver, windowless 1977 GMC cargo van. The sliding door on the side meant that it would be easier for them to quickly grab a girl, rather than having to open the passenger door wide enough to fit her in. The next step was to customize the back of the van to their liking. This included adding a bed, a cooler, and a toolbox. The toolbox was the most important item in the van, as it housed their favorite instruments of torture. It held larger items, such as a sledgehammer, as well as smaller items, like Lawrence's favorite tool, a pair of pliers. He was also the one who decided to nickname their mobile rape and torture unit, Murder Mac. The men would get together on weekends and go to the beach where Lawrence would photograph teenage girls. 
They spent most of their time driving up and down the Pacific Coast Highway. They continued their discussions of rape and explored various fire roads in the Southern California mountains, looking for places with adequate privacy. Roy and Lawrence often parked along beaches and flirted with girls they saw, even photographing some of them. The pair picked up over 20 girls, but always let them go. This was all a part of their dry runs. Their goal was to perfect their routine before ever actually kidnapping a girl. Their next goal was to find the ideal spot for dumping bodies with discretion. It would take them a couple months before they found the perfect place, but after Lawrence's suggestion, in April, the men found a fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. The gate guarding access to the fire road was padlocked, but that didn't stop the men at all. The San Gabriel Mountains contain a vast number of canyons and are difficult to navigate both by foot and by vehicle. There's an area with a gradual slope leading to the desert floor at the bottom, and there's another side on the south that has a steep drop. The choice of San Gabriel for the site of the attacks meant that there would be isolation during the torture and next to no detection during disposal. The mountains are also home to pumas, black bears, bobcats, and coyotes, meaning the remains could be scattered by the animals, making them difficult or impossible to find. With the dry runs complete and the torture and disposal site scouted, it was time for Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris to set out on their reign of terror. The men learned that hitchhikers were the easiest to coerce into their van, and they were even more likely to accept a ride at the offer of alcohol or pot. On June 27, 1979, Lawrence was driving the van with Roy as passenger on the Pacific Coast Highway in Redondo Beach. They had been driving all day, nearly 15 hours. They occupied themselves the way they did on any normal day, by smoking weed and taking photographs of unsuspecting girls. Around 7.46 p.m., a short, thin blonde caught their eye. She was wearing a white blouse, dark blue jeans, and beige sandals, a fairly appropriate outfit considering she was spotted exiting St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. The girl they saw was Lucinda Schaefer, who went by Cindy, walking along the highway. She was making her way back to her grandmother's house from a Christian youth meeting she attended at the church. As she turned onto a residential street, Lawrence started tailing her. As they approached, Roy rolled down his window and asked Cindy if she wanted a ride or some grass. Cindy politely declined, then continued to go about her day. Lawrence sped past her and whipped a U-turn, then parked the van a short distance down the street on the side she was walking. When Cindy walked by, he grabbed her and dragged her into the van. Cindy let out a couple small screams before the door slammed shut. In the back of the van, Roy bound and gagged Cindy. When they arrived at the fire road in the mountains, Roy raped Cindy while Lawrence stood lookout. Then Lawrence raped her and Roy a second time. She asked Roy if the men intended to kill her and asked for time to pray before they did. The men laughed in her face, then Lawrence told her, God isn't here, only devils. Roy, however, assured her that she wouldn't be killed. Lawrence then returned to the van and Roy stood watch outside. After about 45 minutes, Lawrence emerged and the two men argued about whether or not to kill Cindy. Roy said he had told Cindy that she wouldn't be killed, but Lawrence insisted on killing her so she couldn't identify them. Lawrence said that kidnapping with bodily harm carried a sentence of life imprisonment without possibility of parole. Roy was unwilling to risk such a sentence and finally agreed to the killing. The men slid open the van door and joined Cindy in the back. Lawrence held her while Roy tried to strangle her, but when he changed his grip, Cindy and Lawrence fell over backwards. 
Lawrence dropped his cigarette, which burnt a hole in his shirt and scarred his chest. He then attempted to strangle Cindy, but was unable to squeeze tightly enough to kill her. Rather, her eyes rolled back and she started convulsing. Lawrence took a clothes hanger and looped it around her neck. Roy couldn't get the hanger tight enough, but Lawrence used pliers to tighten it like a garrote to kill Cindy. Cindy convulsed for a few more moments before her body went limp and she stopped moving. The coat hanger was so deeply embedded in Cindy's neck that it had cut through the flesh and blood was seeping out. They wrapped her in a shower curtain and threw her body over the steep cliff. Cindy never got to pray as she had asked. 16-year-old Cindy, born July 9th of 1960, was never seen again. Her body has never been recovered. The only trace left of Lucinda Lynn Schaefer was the shoe she left behind as she was dragged into the van and the $220 left in her savings account. Those who knew her recall that she was a sweet and intelligent girl. She tutored in Spanish, algebra, and geometry during her short time in high school. And she had dreams of going to college to study language so she could teach foreign languages just like her mom. On July 4th, 1979, a little over a week after the murder of Cindy Schaefer, Lawrence and Roy set out to find another victim. While driving in Manhattan Beach, they saw Andrea Hall, age 18, from Ohio. Andrea was at the beach with her sister, and she left to hitchhike in order to visit her boyfriend in Wilmington. Before Roy and Lawrence could offer her a ride, a man in another car picked up Andrea on the Pacific Coast Highway. The men followed that car to Redondo Beach, where Andrea got out and resumed hitchhiking. Lawrence drove up to her, rolled down his window, and offered her a ride. After she entered the van, Roy, who had been hiding underneath the bed in the back, attacked her. Andrea put up a fight, and with all the traffic, Lawrence started to worry. As he continued driving to their special spot, he turned the radio up to full volume to drown out any residual screams. Roy had finally managed to bind and gag her. They drove into the mountains, passing the place where Cindy Schaefer was killed. They followed a similar routine to when they sexually assaulted Cindy. Roy got out and stood guard while Lawrence raped Andrea, then the men switched places. When it was Roy's turn to wait outside again, he thought he saw headlights coming up the fire road. Lawrence took Andrea into some bushes by the road while Roy drove the van, searching unsuccessfully for the intruder. When Roy returned, they drove to a new location. Lawrence took Andrea up a small hill, maintaining communication with Roy by walkie-talkie. Upon returning two hours later, Lawrence showed Roy eight photographs he had taken. These included photos where he forced Andrea to pose naked. Lawrence drove to another place, said he wanted to rape Andrea again, and again took her to a hill near the road. Roy drove to a store, keeping in communication by radio. When he returned, Lawrence was alone. He told Roy he had taken more pictures. He showed Roy two pictures in which Andrea appeared frightened, and told Roy that he took them after telling Andrea that he was going to kill her, challenging her to come up with as many reasons as she could why he shouldn't kill her. This time, Lawrence wanted to try something new. He made sure to stash an ice pick in his toolbox after seeing a movie in prison where an ice pick was the murder weapon. Lawrence then killed Andrea by thrusting an ice pick through her ear into her brain. However, as illustrated through the procedures utilized during transorbital lobotomies, a thin metal rod inserted into the brain isn't necessarily enough to cause death. When she didn't die instantly, he turned her over and pushed the pick through the other ear and stepped on it until the handle broke. 
He then strangled Andrea until she died and threw her body over an embankment into some bushes. Like Cindy Schaefer before her, Andrea Hall's body was never recovered. In both cases, missing posters had gone up around town, but there were absolutely no leads. Andrea Hall grew up in Akron, Ohio, and moved to Los Angeles, California in February of 1978. She regularly wrote letters home. She had no job at the time of her disappearance, and her only steady source of income came from donating blood. She left behind a savings account containing just a few dollars. On September 2nd, 1979, Jacqueline Doris Gilliam and Jacqueline Leah Lamp were hanging out together at Redondo Beach. Jacqueline Doris, who went by Jackie, was 15 years old. Jacqueline Leah, who went by Leah, was 13. They sat down on a bench together and held out their thumbs, ready to begin their hitchhiking journey. Lawrence and Norris picked them up in the van and the girl sat in the back. As Lawrence drove off, Roy offered them a joint. The girls accepted, and after passing them the joint, Roy hit Leah with a black bag filled with lead BB pellets, then subdued and tied Jackie. Leah regained consciousness and attempted to escape the van. They were stopped in front of a tennis court when Leah screamed out to the people who looked her way. Lawrence caught her and forced her back into the van, shouting to the onlookers that she was having a bad trip on LSD and he was taking her home. Lawrence then drove to San Gabriel, beyond the site of the other two murders. Neither Lawrence nor Roy was sexually interested in Leah. Instead, Lawrence set out to rape Jackie and told her that she better pretend that she enjoyed it. Learning that she was a virgin, he set up a tape recorder to record her cries during the assault. It had been one of his fantasies to record the rape of a virgin. After Roy raped Jackie, they retied the girls and all remained in the van overnight. The next morning, Lawrence took Leah up a hill, took some photographs, and left her there. Upon returning, he arranged for Roy to take a series of photographs of him with Jackie, beginning with them clothed, then nude, then during intercourse and oral copulation. Lawrence brought Leah back to the van and they drove into town for food and supplies. Upon their return, Lawrence took additional nude photographs of Jackie. Lawrence tortured her by pinching her legs and breast with a vice grip. He tightened the vice grip so hard around one of her nipples that he tore it off. Lawrence then took Jackie out of the van and killed her. First, he cradled her head in his hand, then he thrusted an ice pick through her ear into her brain. Like Andrea, it didn't kill her instantly, so he began choking her. Lawrence returned to the van, grabbed Leah, who had been forced to take tranquilizers to keep quiet, and as she stepped out of the van, struck her with a sledgehammer. Lawrence choked Leah while Roy struck her with the hammer until she was dead. The men then threw the bodies over an embankment. Jackie Gilliam and Leah Lamp's bodies were eventually found, but only partial remains had been recovered. When Jackie's skull was found, the ice pick was still embedded in the bone. Jackie was born on March 17, 1964 in Wisconsin. Leah was born October 18, 1965 in California. It was late in the evening on Halloween night, 1979, when Lawrence and Roy were out hunting for victims again. They spotted and picked up 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford, who was hitchhiking home from a Halloween party. Upon entering the van, Lawrence grabbed her and threw her in the back. Both of the men struggled with her until Lawrence pulled out a knife. She grabbed the blade but severely cut one of her fingers in the process. They bound her, then drove to a secluded area on a gravel path. Roy then moved into the driver's seat. 
Lawrence turned on his tape recorder. As Roy drove, he could hear screams coming from the back of the van. Lawrence didn't like when Shirley was quiet during the torture and rape, and he would slap her and torture her more to get her to scream. He had even punched her breasts repeatedly in order to beat them back into her chest. As Lawrence raped and sodomized Shirley repeatedly, he tortured her with pliers, tearing her insides until she was no longer rapeable. After one or two hours, Lawrence turned off the recorder and changed places with Roy. Roy compelled Shirley to orally copulate him, then turned on the recorder and began hitting her on the elbow with a hammer, leaving her with a broken elbow and a cluster of bruises. After shattering the bones in her left elbow, Shirley begged Roy not to hit her again, but he didn't listen. Roy struck that same broken elbow 25 more times. When Roy finished torturing Shirley, Lawrence told him to kill her. Roy grabbed a metal coat hanger and placed it over Shirley's head. As had been done to Cindy Schaefer, the hanger was tightened with pliers like a garrote. By now, it was the early morning hours of November 1st, and Roy had to be getting to work soon. Lawrence suggested dumping the body in someone's front yard so they could see the reaction in the newspaper. They disposed of Shirley's body in a bed of ivy in a suburban neighborhood, where it was discovered by the woman whose property it was on. When she first spotted Shirley's body, she actually thought it was a Halloween decoration. When Shirley's body was finally recovered by police, it was found that the hanger around her neck had been tightened to the size of a silver dollar. When Roy was incarcerated prior to the murders, he became friends with a man named Joe Jackson. In November of 1979, he began telling Joe that he had been raping and murdering girls with Lawrence. Roy told Joe that murdering these girls was how he was able to sleep at night, since he knew they wouldn't be able to identify him. Joe Jackson was no angel. He himself had been in prison for rape, but the details of Roy and Lawrence's reign of terror disturbed him so much that he went to the police. Of course, the police couldn't just take a convicted rapist's word for it, so they sent detectives out on surveillance. During their stakeout, detectives Paul Bynum and his partner Tom Cray followed Roy to a drugstore. When he entered the store, the detectives looked through the windows of his car to see what they could find. In the passenger seat, sitting in an open brown paper bag, was weed that Roy bought. As Roy walked out of the store, the detectives held a gun to Roy and told him that he was under arrest for violating his parole. This meant that they were allowed to search Roy's residence, which ultimately gave them more than they could have imagined. Detectives Bynum and Cray found over 500 photographs of girls taken in numerous locations, including supermarket parking lots, gyms, and outside of high schools. Among these photographs, all which represented potential victims, was a photo of Jackie Gilliam, nude from the waist up, with her hands on top of her head. Roy's phone rang, and one of the detectives picked it up. It was Lawrence. He asked where Roy was, and the detective told him that he had gone up to the roof to fix his antenna. Lawrence was suspicious, and immediately after he hung up, he cleaned out Murder Mac. While at Roy's duplex, a card for Scott Motel with Lawrence's name and number on it caught the detective's eye. They made a call to Burbank PD to try to find Lawrence at the motel. The police found the room Lawrence was renting and kicked down the door, catching Lawrence while he was in the shower. Lawrence's trial made headlines by January of 1981. His trial was the first in California history that allowed cameras in the courtroom. By this time, Roy had pleaded guilty to all the charges against him and agreed to testify against Lawrence in order to avoid the death penalty. 
Lawrence was quick to deny everything when it came to the horrors he inflicted on the five teenage girls, but he made a vital mistake by leaving the cassette of Shirley Ledford's torture and rape in the cassette player. When the tape of Shirley's murder was played in the courtroom, it painted a clear picture of exactly the kind of monster Lawrence Bittaker was. Shirley's final moments caught on cassette echoed out in the courtroom, her final chance to be heard. The audio was so gut-wrenching that jurors began visibly crying and members of the gallery as well as the court artists had to excuse themselves. Though the torture all five girls suffered is horrifying, Shirley Ledford's torture was exceptionally brutal, as if everything they had done so far led up to a grand finale of horror. According to the autopsy report, petechial hemorrhage and compression marks were found on her neck, confirming that strangulation was the cause of her death. Her face, head, and breasts showed signs of blunt force trauma caused when the men were punching her about the body. The linings of her rectum and vagina showed tears from the insertion of the pliers, and her elbows showed destruction from the pounding they took from the sledgehammer. Her fingers were cut, and there was a puncture wound in one of her breasts, most likely caused by an ice pick. In addition, her wrists and ankles showed ligature marks, a sign that she had been restrained. After three weeks, the trial finally came to an end, and on February 17, 1981, Lawrence Bittaker was found guilty of the five murders plus 21 other related charges. The second stage of the criminal trial, now that he had been found guilty, would be to determine what punishment he would suffer. Prosecutors must demonstrate to the court that there are special circumstances that support the call for a death sentence. The audio tapes that the pair made during their killings were played for the jury, and the jury recommended the death penalty. On March 24th, the judge agreed with the recommendation of the jury, and Lawrence Bittaker was sentenced to death. In addition to the death sentence, he was also sentenced to 199 years to life, a precaution in case in the future someone commutes the death sentence. Five lives were lost in some of the most painful, gruesome ways possible. Five young girls, who were all bright in their own ways, were unspeakably brutalized for nothing but the perverted fantasies of two fiendish men. The families of Cindy Schaefer and Andrea Hall never got full closure, as they had no recovered remains to lay to rest. What little remained of Jackie Gilliam's body was interred at Oakwood Memorial Park in Chatsworth, California. Leah Lamp's remains were interred at Pacific Crest Cemetery near Redondo Beach. Shirley Ledford, born March 4th of 1963, was laid to rest in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Hollywood Hills, California. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to stay tuned for next week's Story from the Mortuary.